Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, because that's where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate. And we're also joined today by a special guest, Philip Booth. Philip is director of Catholic Mission and professor of finance, public policy, and ethics at St. Mary's University, Twickenham, the UK's largest Catholic university. He is also an actuary and is a PhD in finance and worked previously for the Institute of Economic Affairs and the Bank of England. He is also the author of the essay, Creating an Economy of Inclusion, which was published in the fall 2023 issue of Religion and Liberty and also was published online last Monday. RNL is available at select Barnes & Noble and Books A Million stores across the country. And you can save the time and trouble by subscribing to get our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times per year for only $29.99. We'll include a link in the show notes where you can subscribe uh, along with a link to Philip's essay. This week, we'll be discussing Osama bin Laden's letter to America blowing up on TikTok and the fawning over Xi Jinping by American CEOs. But first to Philip's essay in this issue of Religion and Liberty that is focused on the subject of poverty. Uh, Philip, I just want to start off by opening up and asking you to tell us, what is your essay about? Well, my essay really is, is about how so many people in the world are poor because they are not excluded by markets, but are excluded from markets by poor institutions, by poor governance, by corruption, by war and conflict, uh, and, and so on. Now, the number of, uh, as I make clear in the essay, that the number of people who are in dire poverty has declined dramatically, and other indicators of economic welfare and social welfare have improved also dramatically over the last um, few decades. Um, but nevertheless, some people, perhaps actually uh, for the first time in 40 years, beginning now to be a growing number again of, of people are in, in dire poverty, and this is a really serious problem. So one of the ways you frame this opening up, and I really enjoyed enjoyed this essay and highly recommend it. We'll have this linked in the show notes. Um, you open up by talking about the preferential option for the poor and how the church goes about thinking through these issues of poverty, not only not only um, not only questions of, of sort of the political economy of exclusion is, is, is another way you, you talk about this in this essay, but just why the folk, why does the church focus so intensely on the poor? What is sort of the animating principle of the preferential option for the poor? And why does the church center the, the, the condition of the poor and the concerns of the poor when it talks about economic development when it talks about uh, human flourishing in general? Christians throughout the ages have had a special concern for the poor, and that really comes from um, gospel values, from the Beatitudes, from a whole range of, um, uh, of, of values that, that are deeply in, embedded in Christianity from the very beginning, and not only from the very beginning of Christianity, but also throughout the, um, the Old Testament, where you know, uh, people in the Old Testament are admonished if they don't look after the widow and the orphan and, and, and the, the poor and, and, and so on. So uh, putting the poor at the centre of our attention is, is something which is demanded by the uh, by the Christian way of life. And uh, I mean, modern Catholic social teaching, I suppose, has expressed this by uh, thinking about and talking about the importance of human dignity and, and those preconditions which are necessary for human dignity. And in order for a, a human person to live a dignified life, well, first of all, they must have life. So the state must protect life from um, conception, conception until natural death. But secondly, for those, um, everyone must have those basic things which are necessary 
for dignified life, food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, education, and so on. Now, a mistake that some people make is to assume that because people must have these things, they must be provided by, by government. Well, in general, they're not provided by government. Actually, we, we, we hardly ever get our food from government. And actually, throughout history, we have not had got those things that we need for a dignified life uh, from government. Uh, so what um, the church normally teaches is that governments must create the conditions by which human flourishing, the flourishing of all people within society, uh, can take place so that all have the material means for a dignified life. Excellent. And as you develop this, one of the one of the concerns that comes up again and again in the church's social teaching, from Pope John the Twenty Third to uh, Pope John uh, Pope Paul the Sixth to uh, down to to uh, Pope Francis in the present day, is particularly the folks. Uh, in the developing world, who historically have been much, much poorer. And mm-hmm. so the question is, is in what ways has the, has the church's teaching specifically directed to the poor in those areas? In what ways is it, is it addressed to those outside of the developing world and their obligations to those in the developing world? And then in what way is it directed to leadership in the developing world itself? Because there's there's a couple of different things going on, and we've talked about already how the, those economic circumstances have changed throughout this century in the developing world as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when when the first Catholic social teaching document, modern Catholic social teaching document, was produced in 1891, it was really directed towards the industrializing uh, world and the treatment of uh, workers in the industrializing world. Uh, now, of course, the industrialising world at the time, by and large, was the Catholic or, or Christian world, at least, and included uh, Europe, um, uh, the Americas, and, and, and so on. And the treatment of workers was a, the, the, a key concern of, of Pope Leo's. Then as, as time moves on, of course, those industrialised uh, e- economies become more prosperous, and the vast majority of people within those um, economies become relatively prosperous. And then from 1967, Pope Paul VI made a series of visits to desperately poor countries, including India, which I think made a particular mark on him. And he wrote an encyclical letter called Populorum Progressio, which was really focusing on the needs um, and desperate position of the poorest people um, in the world's poorest countries, many of which, of of course, were not um, Christian at all. I mean, the, the two biggest countries uh, of th- that were desperately poor at that time would have been China and uh, India, and, and neither of those uh, two were, were Christian countries. But nevertheless, despite those countries not being Christian countries, Pope Paul uh, VI makes clear that uh, the, that richer countries have an obligation to help the development of, of those, those poorer countries. And he suggested that one way that that should be done is through the provision of um, foreign aid to poorer countries, but that wasn't the only way in, in which it should be done. And then in every encyclical um, that's been written, every social encyclical that's been written by a, a pope since 1967 has mentioned uh, very often, actually, at quite some length, um, that the plight of the, the, the poorest of the poor. Now, Pope Francis, not surprisingly, he comes from Argentina, um, has uh, which is a, a country with very many poor people, although it's a, a middle-income country, has a particular concern uh, for the poor. And and in his letters, Laudato Si, which is largely about the environment, and Fratelli Tutti, which is about the brotherhood of all peoples. uh, Again, he talks about the plight of the world's poorest um, at at great length. And um, he talks uh, or writes about um, a whole range of problems. uh, And um, one of the problems which he mentions, actually, at greater length, I think, than other popes, is the problem of corruption and how corruption in um, poorer countries keeps people poor. And I would argue, and it's it's the reason for the um, the sort of theme of the essay, if you like, that corruption um, uh, pe- keeps people poor because it prevents them from participating in markets. So it's not exclude um, it's not markets that exclude people. People are excluded from markets, including by corruption and other uh, aspects of poor governance, no, uh, war, civil conflict, lack of protection of property rights, and so on. 
Yeah, as you have these sort of, you know, Michael Miller here at the Acton Institute likes to talk about these as the, as the institutions of justice. These are the sort uh-huh. of necessary preconditions you need for an econ- for a market economy to function. And the church has long, you know, you often get a caricature of Catholic social teaching that um, it is um, anti-business, anti-market. But one of the strains that you point to in your essay is that there's a continuing, there's a continuous teaching um, throughout the church's tradition about the the importance of the government in enabling these market conditions and preventing this sort of political economy of exclusion that you're talking about. What are some of the concrete ways that governments can, you know, you know, suffering from this political economy of exclusion, some of the con- some concrete ways that they can work to fight against that and to build more inclusive economies and support uh, more inclusive economies for their own people? In some senses, that's quite a difficult question to answer, because if the problem is government it, itself, um, there's a sense in which they're not going to heal themselves. You, know, you, you, you need a, a, a cultural as well as a political uh, uh, change, I, I think, to change some of these things. But if, if we think about this at the level of, of policy, governments must do those basic things which have been mentioned in Catholic social teaching at, um, um, by a number of popes, perhaps most explicitly by Pope John Paul II, but, but actually by all popes, um, which create the basic framework for a market economy um, to work. So they would include um, the government ensuring that that the, the, the peace was kept, that there was a, a system of justice which was fair, efficient, and um, uncorrupt, that we have a reasonably stable monetary uh, re- regime. Catholic social teaching has, has uh, uh, taken that issue up for four or 500 years, in, in, in fact. Um, and that we, we also have the uh, a regime of um, ensuring that property rights are well uh, protected within an economy, so that the, the the I can keep the fruits of my work if I um, buy a, 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 a property from which I run a business or a small farm or something like that. I can ensure that I can enforce the ownership of that property against anybody who might come and try and take it away from me. Because if I don't, I won't invest in it. I won't create a business which will employ people. Uh, I won't be able to advertise and um, promote my uh, business. I won't develop the basic services which are necessary for you know humane, humane living conditions. And that's why so many people live in slums in so many parts of the world, because there are not stable and enforceable property rights, which then give people the incentive to invest uh, in the infrastructure, which makes um, a, a decent standard of living um, possible. So all of these themes are recurrent and constant uh, themes within Catholic social teaching in order that a business economy can thrive. But the encyclicals also um, point out, the popes, the church also points out that business which evolves within that uh, um, economic framework, within that political framework, uh, must be ethically directed. Uh, as all of our human activity should be ethically uh, directed. So sometimes when the popes are being accused of criticizing business, they're not criticizing business as such. Pope Francis has described business as a noble vocation, but they're criticizing the um, the activities of, of certain businesses or the moral disposition of certain business people and so on. And of course, there's evil in the business world, just as as there is evil in uh, all parts uh, of our world. But we can't have an economy which promotes prosperity unless we have an economy which um, allows business. And I think that's a pretty uh, clear message of all the encyclicals. And I don't think Pope Francis deviates from that. The point you were making about how these things need to be ethically directed, it struck me because as I watch some of the debates about you know, what uh, my, my question for you ultimately is you know, how politically prescriptive is Catholic social teaching because I have certainly encountered people who make arguments that um, their understanding of Catholic social teaching necessitates some kind of social democracy, uh, the, you know, a greater role for the state in making sure and ensuring some of the, uh, the, the care for the poor that uh, I think we're all attuned to. But as you make the point about things being 
ethically directed, a lot of that opprobrium seems to be directed at actors in the marketplace, mm-hmm. kind of without regard for, or at least with this implicit assumption that people uh, in the you know kind of more favored uh, political categories are going to just by default be more ethically directed, that mm-hmm. people serving within governments are just de facto going to be uh, more ethically directing of their actions. The people in labor unions are by default going to be more ethically directing of their actions. And that just, I mean, to me, but apparently not to everyone, just seems to be obviously incorrect that there are you know, there are failures really in all of those instantiations, right? There are people who are going to act in ways that aren't ethically good. Um, and the the assumption that we just kind of seem to operate on sometimes of if you're doing things out of a political interest uh, through the mechanism of the state, well, then your intentions must be good and everything must be well ethically directed. But people who do it through the marketplace, well, they're just greedy and rich and they're trying to benefit themselves. And there's this disconnect. So if you, you could talk about what is the interplay between Catholic social teaching and a political philosophical approach to how we use the state? Yeah. So there's, there's lots in Catholic social teaching which is left to what is called prudential judgment. And I'll, I'll come um, back to that in a moment. But I, you've raised a really good point there about how, um, in the words of the public choice economist, um, uh, Jim Buchanan, how we often assume a sort of bifurcation of man, in other words, a um, in other words, a um, situation whereby if people are operating in the business sphere, somehow they are potentially corrupt, greedy, et cetera, et cetera. Yet if the same people are operating in the sphere of um, of, of public life, they will necessarily only act in the uh, the, the best interests of the, the public at large. And actually, one of the uh, uh, good things about a market economy is that it, it limits the um, possibility for human sinfulness to create really serious um, uh, really serious problems uh, so if I'm work if I'm uh, operating a business of course I can defraud people of course I can sell shoddy products um, and, and so on and of course we can have the kind of behavior which uh, contributed at least um, and some people would say it led to the financial crisis of 2010 but by and large, if I'm operating in a business, I do actually have to provide something that's a benefit to somebody else. And that limits the extent to which my um, uh, maybe natural tendency to, towards uh, uh, sin uh, can cause harm. Indeed, in fact, a business economy, in a sense, uh, even in a person who is uh, um, not well morally disposed, can, can cultivate some of the virtues. I have an incentive in a business economy to produce decent products, to turn up on time, to keep my word, otherwise I'll get a bad reputation. Whereas um, if we have a, a government which is disciplined really only by a four or five yearly election cycle, which in itself may be part of a corrupt um, process, there are many fewer constraints on the evil activities of, of, of governments. And so um, evil people, I think, can cause a, a, a a lot more problem acting within government than they will than the same people will acting within uh, business. But also, if you get a certain type of of government which centralizes power uh, within itself, then the wrong type of people will be, uh, as, as Hayek put it in the Road to Serfdom, the worst get on top. The wrong type of people will be attracted um, uh, to, to government. So you won't get moral and ethical people actually you know inhabiting the, the high places of government. And corruption in a large number of countries, whether you're thinking about Venezuela, Nigeria, um, uh, India, there have been some improvements in some of these countries, but corruption is is catastrophic uh, and and causes huge misery, uh, both in political life and civil life, um, but but also in business life and and causes a great deal of poverty uh, as as well. Um, So, yeah, these, I think the, the, the... the concern, the, the the mistake that people make is is this mistake of the bifurcation uh, of the human person. The idea that somehow in business they're evil and greedy, but if the same people are in politics, um, that they're not. We are all um, molded ultimately out of the 
uh, out of the same clay. Uh, we, we're all uh, made to be good, but have a tendency, um, unfortunately, also to be evil. You've reminded me of the great quote from Adam Smith that I have uh, something to the effect of I've known little good to be done by those who affect to trade for the public good, which is one mm-hmm. I think people often misunderstand. But you know, the, the idea that you know, people, when they go before the government and they nobody goes there and says, you should give me a million dollars because I'm a good person. I deserve a million dollars. They say, you should give me a, a million dollars because I'm going to help these people. And oh, of course, by the way, I'm going to take 10 percent off the top in the process of doing so, um, which I think just goes to underline that the inefficiency at minimum that comes along with that or the ways that people can manipulate public sentiment or the sentiment of political actors uh, for their own individual furtherance that may also help people in the process. Uh, But we we regard this as being somehow noble uh, and always noble. And there are people who clearly regard market actions as being ignoble and without finding a way to balance the two of these in their own mind. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and Catholic social teaching has, has that balance. It, it recognises um, that, that the church understands that the, the true nature of, of the, the human person, um, which in a sense, it really derives from theology, philosophy and anthropology. But it has implications, of course, for how we um, uh, how we construct our political and economic orders. And, and I should say it, it works as well, because in in the article, I talk about how there's been a dramatic reduction in poverty in the last 30 or 40 years, a huge increase in literacy, a huge reduction in maternal mortality and mortality amongst um, uh, young children, a very large increase in life expectancy. And what may has come what may be come as surprising to, to many people, there's been a, a massive reduction in global inequality in the last um, 40 to 45 years. And the reason for that is because more governments uh, in that period, let's say um, uh, 1980 to 2015, have been getting some of the basics right, which are necessary for a reasonably prosperous uh, business economy. There's been a reduction in conflict. Um, there's been better governance in a number of countries. There's been a reduction in corruption. Uh, and there's been uh, increased protection for property rights, reduced regulation, increased trade and globalization. Uh, has all been part of uh, that uh, as well. And what worries me is that we're now going to reverse on some of those uh, on on some of those measures of governance, and that's leading to a reversal in terms of uh, economic and social outcomes as well. So you talk about this movement away from from well, first, you talk about it in terms of there was this Washington consensus. Um, is the language you use in the essay. And you talk about this, all these governments from, you know, 1980 to the present moving in a generally, you know, in a more reform-minded, more market-driven direction. Chief among these are, of course, you know, India, China, but also Vietnam you point to. You point to there are a lot of very dramatic success stories. What is the alternative that you see some people coming forward with now pushing against this Washington consensus, despite its very well-documented success, not only in, in elevating people's you know, amount of wealth, but along all of these metrics, literacy, health, all of these, all of these social uh, dimensions seem to be enriched by this sort of uh, liberalizing reforms. Why is there a movement against it? And what does that movement look like today? It's difficult to understand, really, why there has been this this movement against the Washington consensus. It, it seems to me to be um, maybe just not distinguishing between the wood and the trees, and it's taking some particular problems with its implementation and, and then uh, blaming that on, on the whole idea. But if we take the idea of the Washington consensus, that basically uh, to have prosperity, you need... Um, uh, uh, reasonable governance, low levels of corruption, a stable macroeconomic environment, in other words, low and stable inflation, a reasonably balanced budget, um, good business conditions, reduced regulation, um, not too much of business being in the state's hands, uh, etc., etc. Then I think it's undeniable that those things are necessary for the promotion of prosperity. I, I suppose where you could argue that the Washington consensus went a bit wrong was that uh, it was sometimes really rather prescriptive in in the way in which 
um, certain international institutions and certain governments perhaps as well went into countries and were, were um, quite prescriptive in terms of how they uh, suggested or told those countries to reform uh, the, their economies. There was a kind of imperialism there, if, if, if you like. But having said that, it, it was imperialism in relation to what I think are simply enduring values about how to govern uh, countries. Um, in, in addition to that, you, you, you have sequencing of reforms in some countries, which I think were catastrophic. So maybe the classic example there is Russia, where one of the first reforms were privatization. But you have the privatization whilst um, most of the communist uh, political infrastructure still existed. And so the, the, the people who were part of that political infrastructure were able to enrich themselves uh, through the process of privatization and the uh, ordinary people got no benefit from it at all. And, and that's probably not the only example um, of, of where that happened. And then that deeply corrupted the political culture uh, as well. But the but the basic um, principles by how an economy moves from poverty to prosperity, I don't think are reasonably disputed. Now, of course, there are people, Mariana Mazzucato is one of them, um, Joe Stiglitz and another, who propose a much more interventionist role for the state and argue, I think, using some examples um, that the state has been quite interventionist in countries that have developed. Well, I would say, um, to counter that, that it, it, it's true that if you get the basics right of um, peace, absence of corruption, a reasonable legal system, protection of property rights, decent business conditions and, somebody, and, and deregulation, a, a country will prosper even if it's quite interventionist in, in some respects, but it doesn't mean that the interventionism is causing um, that prosperity. And if the interventionism, if um, the, the economic interventionism uh, actually um, puts power in the hands, more power in the hands of government, more economic power in the hands of government, this, this will often be a, a magnet for corruption and create the kind of conditions that we've had in Argentina and Venezuela, say, which has seen economies move from a high degree of prosperity um, through a period of retrenchment and then more or less complete political breakdown uh, as a result of, of corruption. So I, I think putting more economic power in the hands of a fragile state is really a very dangerous um, thing to do. And those who propose the sort of developmental state model, I think, uh, are in danger of proposing um, something which can actually move a country from relative prosperity to dire poverty. I always think you see this rather acutely in the way that some people talk about what has happened in China over the last 20 to 30 years, where, you know, after the communist takeover of China and after decade upon decade of just, you know, one still grinding poverty and the slaughter of millions and millions of people, the country comes to reluctantly embrace markets as a means to pull a lot of those people out of poverty and to modernize itself as a state and to turn itself into a global superpower. And there is this kind of very, uh, to my by my lights, demented way of looking at it that sees what I just laid out there and goes, by gosh, it must be the totalitarianism. Mm. Uh, it is it's just a very odd way and it's a slightly different example too uh, than states that had wealth and well-functioning economies who went in one particular direction and have you know, wreaked all kinds of havoc like you see in Venezuela. You know, there's, the, the thing that's challenging about China is that they have absolutely shown that you can liberalize markets to a great extent and still have incredible political repression. And that mm -hmm. is the kind of – that is the challenge that we have to deal with now and at this point in the 21st century. But to look at what has happened in China and think anything other than the liberalization of markets has led to pulling millions and millions of people out of poverty and that is how it happened, uh, it really takes just you know kind of turning your head upside down and having to look at it backwards. Uh, yes, that, that, that's very true. And um, of, of course, we're, we're seeing um, after the period of maybe 30 years of, of liberalization, uh, now an increase in political repression and an increase in the economic role of the state. And, and we're seeing economic growth slowing. We're seeing um, unemployment rising. Maybe that would have happened anyway, but I, I think it's actually related to the reversal of the process of, of liberalization. There was a time around maybe 2010 to 2015 
when there was a reasonable, or 2005 to 2015, say, when, when there was a reasonable chance, perhaps, that the Chinese government would continue its momentum onto being a freer and freer and more prosperous uh, society. It's decided to go in the opposite direction, and the results don't look great, either from the perspective of uh, um, the uh, basic dignity of the, the human person being free from political oppression, uh, nor from the pers um, perspective of uh, economic growth. And this I, this um, tendency of intervention is to look at one indicator and suggest that, that one single indicator is the explanation of why um, a, a particular country is either rich or poor is um, really does need to be countered. I mean, this happens at the level of prosperous countries when people compare, for example, the United States and, and Denmark. I think I'm right in saying that by almost every measure of economic freedom, regulation, um, lack of corruption, uh, protection of property rights, uh, and, and, and so on. Denmark is a freer economy than the United States. But then people say, look at um, Denmark's high marginal tax rates and say, ah, oh, Denmark's got high marginal tax rates. That must be the reason why Denmark is a really prosperous country and possibly, although I'm sure many of your listeners would dispute this, possibly a better place to live uh, than the United States. They don't look at all the other um, uh, measures of uh, economic freedom, which actually suggests that Denmark is, I, I think I'm right in saying, a freer economy uh, than the US. Yeah, so there's a tendency to um, pull out one variable and say, ah, that must be the explanation of why um, this country has failed or that this country has, has succeeded. One of the reasons you point to, um, I think very, 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 uh, very perceptively in this essay of the persistence of these challenges is, is something that gets drawn out in Catholic social teaching is talking about the structures of sin mm -hmm. that um, create these, these patterns of behavior that make it very, very difficult as an individual to do the honorable thing in your own private life because you're embedded in these in these corrupt systems and make it very, very difficult for political leaders to do the right thing because of the corruption and make it difficult even for business leaders to do the right thing in these contexts. Could you unpack for our listeners um, sort of that element of Catholic social teaching and how it bears on this political economy of exclusion and how, you know, because I'm thinking as, as we talk about the backsliding in China, many people are very concerned about uh, potential backsliding in India as well. And part of me, part of me thinks when I was reading your essays, looking at that is when you look at the reforms done by Prime Minister Rao in India and by Deng Xiaoping in China, um, they were liberalizations, but there was also corruption embedded in even in even the success stories that I think make it make those successes very fragile um, in a sense because these structures of sin are never really dealt with um, on a comprehensive level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and one of the problems here, I'll 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 go back in a moment to, to uh, talk about what is meant by structure of sin in this context. But what, one of the problems here is that I, I don't think economists perhaps think as much as they should do about the question of the sequencing of reforms and the relationship between the sequencing of reforms and the overall political economy environment. So I mentioned before the, the question of privatizing industries in, uh, in, in Russia whilst much of the communist bureaucracy was, was still in place. Uh, now it may make it may make perfect sense in a different context for privatization to be the to be the first reform, but it didn't make any sense or, or it wasn't the right thing to do um, in the in the context of um, of, of Russia at that at that time in the early 1990s. And so when when you have when you're looking at a reform program, it is worth thinking about which reforms might most effectively break down. Um, the structures of, of sin, uh, one of which I, I mentioned uh, is corruption, another uh, rent-seeking. And uh, I think one, one type of reform which can effectively do that is actually various forms of deregulation, because many poorer countries are very, very highly regulated. Um, so, you know, small businesses have to jump through an incredible number of hoops just to get their businesses registered. 
or to pass routine inspections and, and so on. So, of course, what they do is that they, they offer a bribe to the um, uh, civil servant who is uh, doing the inspections. Maget Wade uh, has, has written about this a, a lot, and, and James Tooley in, uh, also, in, in the context of um, private schools for the poor in, in poorer countries. And um, this also happens with trade regulation. So if you have to get an export license in order to sell your beans to a neighboring country, or you have to get an import license in order to buy the raw materials um, for your factory so that you can produce something and then uh, export it or, or sell it within the domestic market, if you have to get these licenses, if you have to pay really high tariffs, then what do you do? Well, it's very, very tempting. Indeed, you may not be able to avoid it, otherwise your business will go bust to pay a bribe in order to um, in order to avoid the regulations. And um, so actually thinking hard about sequencing of reforms is important. And, and in those situations, actually just removing regulations, especially trade regulations, licensing and inspection regulations wholesale uh, will do much um, to reduce uh, uh, corruption. So just to go back to your the original question, what, what do I what, what do I mean by structures of sin in this context? It, it's really a, a situation whereby sin becomes of a certain type becomes so deeply embedded um, in um, society that even if you're of good moral character, it's actually very difficult to avoid um, being drawn in um, to sin. So if you live in a really corrupt um, society and uh, you're an ethical person, it can often be very difficult to avoid paying bribes. And if you take the example of, let, let's say, you're bidding for a, um, a state contract with a contract with uh, four or five against four or five other uh, companies, and let's say you're a really ethical company, you treat your workers well, um, you treat the natural environment well, and, and so on, and you and you do a good job and deliver the contract um, uh, uh, well, and the the other four companies are terrible companies, and you know that those companies are going to bribe the um, relevant government minister or government official, what do you do as the ethical company? Do you bribe that official as well? It's a very difficult decision, um, perhaps. And you may make excuses to yourself to, to do the um, to do what might be the wrong thing, because down the line, you'll be uh, a country, a company which is behaving more ethically than the alternative companies who could have got the um, contract. So once things like corruption become deeply embedded in society, it, it is very difficult to um, reform those societies. And, and I think economists do need to think more carefully about how they, uh, um, how the different sequencing of reforms can lead to more effective outcomes uh, when uh, in, in promoting uh, what I sort of term in the, uh, in, in the piece as a, a sort of political economy of inclusion, if you like. Well, I want to commend to everyone uh, Philip's fantastic essay, Creating an Economy of Inclusion, which appears in the fall issue, fall 2023 issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty. It's also available online. The link to that essay will be in the show notes. And you can also pick up your copy of Religion and Liberty at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million Stores, as well as, I am now told, uh, dozens of boutique bookstores all across the United States for those listening in this country. Philip, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Act and Unwind. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks. We're going to move now to our second topic for the program today, and I'm going to read from a piece in the New York Times. Videos on TikTok supporting a decades-old letter by Osama bin Laden criticizing the United States and its support of Israel surged in popularity this week, adding to accusations that the company is fueling the spread of anti-Semitic content. The White House condemned the resurfacing of the letter. The letter, titled Letter to America, was published a year after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, that were orchestrated by bin Laden. He defended the attacks in New York and Washington and said Americans had become servants to Jews, who he said controlled the country's economy and media. American taxpayers, he wrote, were complicit in harming Muslims in the Middle East, including destroying Palestinian homes. Some TikTok users said this week, this would be last week, that they viewed the document as an awakening to America's role in global affairs and expressed their disappointment in the United States. One popular video showed a TikTok user brushing her hair with the caption, when you read Osama bin Laden's letter to America and you realize you've been lied to your whole entire life. 
I just want to get this statement on the record for anybody inclined to that viewpoint who may be listening that you do not, uh, as a matter of fact, gotta hand it to Osama bin Laden. Uh, the, the resurfacing of this letter is somewhat interesting because it it inclines me to think that the people claiming that they read it did not actually read the letter because if if we are to presume that the Gen Zers who are supposedly celebrating this and have had their mind opened by it um, maybe just skipped past or or breezed through the calls to convert to Islam or um, the things he has to say about homosexuality that I presume they probably would not generally be on board with. So on one hand, I think there's not a lot of evidence that these people actually took this seriously. So I do want to add a little note of caution on that. This is the kind of thing that gets people to uh, to, to freak out. Uh, but I think there's two two avenues through which we could explore this, right? There is the social media avenue of this. There's the question about TikTok as a platform ex- itself, which I think we would do well to separate from the typical big tech conversation because one can have a very low view of meta or of X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and at the same time draw a clear line of demarcation between that and TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance, and because of the structure of China, we know is essentially a wholly owned subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party. The other is a question about to the extent that people are actually believing this, that the, the people, the things they are saying in these TikTok videos, they believe – What a massive failure on the part of the people in their lives to inculcate into them an understanding of what happened on September 11th, which it is worth pointing out. Most of the people we're talking about here who are making these TikTok videos and having these comments about it weren't alive for or were so young they would have no ability to remember it whatsoever. But – There is a failure there, an educational failure to get people to understand what the reality of that situation was. And that reality is not reflected in Osama bin Laden's letter to America. So let me get this clear, Eric. You're suggesting that people would just go on the Internet and lie? (laughs) It may be hard for some people to believe, but I I think there's a distinct possibility. Okay. So – I mean, the old. I always think there's one. There's one thing. Whenever I see something online that is disturbing, aggravating, seems just totally outlandish, is I remind myself that it's bad on purpose to make you click. And we've talked about this before. That there are people on social media sites that will intentionally lie, intentionally be provocative um, because that solicits interaction uh, and because that makes their content appear before my eyeballs and that there's value to that attention um, in this world. So yeah, you've got a lot of these, a lot of these folks, you know, the fact that you have a slew of them indicates that this is the case, that even if there is, you know, one TikTok influencer who she did happen to go onto The Guardian's website and read Osama bin Laden's letter from America, which is no longer on The yeah. Guardian's website because they themselves were sort of horrified by this development. Um, it got them all sorts of needlessly, uh, uh, you know, uh, it got of, them a lot of blowback that I that is an element that I think we should come yeah. back to in a moment here. But I do um, I, I want to add support to the point that you were making by reading uh, two paragraphs out of this Washington Post story here uh, out of order. Uh, we'll put the whole article in the show notes, but I think buttresses your point. A spokesman for TikTok said that the hashtag letter to America hashtag had been attached to 274 videos that had garnered 1.8 million views on Tuesday and Wednesday. 
before, quote, the tweets and media coverage drove people to the hashtag. Other hashtags for comparison dwarfed discussion of the letter on the platform. During a recent 24-hour period, hashtag travel videos had 137 million views. Hashtag skincare videos had 252 million views. And hashtag anime videos had 611 million views, according to the TikTok spokesman. I want to contextualize that with a paragraph from earlier in this article. Uh, that e- uh, Then that evening, the journalist Yashir Ali shared a compilation he'd made of the TikTok videos in a post on X, formerly Twitter. That post, that one post alone, has been viewed more than 38 million times. By Thursday afternoon, when TikTok announced that it had banned the hashtag and dozens of similar variations, TikTok videos tag hashtag letter to America had gained more than 15 million views. So this becomes one of these interesting incidents where something is bad. Now, whether it's bad on purpose, I'm a little more torn on this individual situation because I don't... I don't know that I'm granting enough foresight and kind of trollish agency to a bunch of Gen Z TikTok creators who are thinking, I guess, that I'm going to boost Osama bin Laden's letter to America because it's going to drive engagement. It's going to make people mad. Uh, I, I do think people who are generally poorly educated and have a poor understanding of domestic politics and geopolitics. Cherry-picked elements of all of that that kind of met them where they were in the current moment. I think you see this reflected in public opinion polling that shows that the age demographic that is most upside down from my point of view on the Israel-Hamas conflict, uh, whether you're more supportive of, of, and you know they ask the question differently, Israel or the Palestinians, is the younger generation. So I think there is some trueness to all of this. But it is the drawing attention to it, like what Yashir Ali did in this case, that drives so much more of the attention and the engagement based around the outrage of the idea that this is what is going on. So in pointing out the bad thing that is happening, we're amplifying the bad thing that is happening and actually making making it into what we thought it what those people seem to think it was in the first place it's this it, it's exploding on tiktok actually it really wasn't exploding all of that much but once we start saying it's exploding on tiktok <clears throat> big surprise it starts exploding so this is this is a classic you know the question is, is why do people say outrageous and provocative things and there there are two reasons one is because the person is Either because they're a saint or because they're a narcissist, they've transcended any regard for what others think and they just say what's true. Um, The other is that they thrive on conflict and that it's designed to generate conflict. And I think this is that case. You look at, you know, this is one of those things that many on the American conservative movement on the American right are are rightfully horrified by and amplified. But if you go back and look at like w- the kind of stories The Atlantic magazine was running every month during the Trump administration about how Reddit forums, you know, My Little Pony Reddit forums were being infiltrated by the alt-right with like, you know, there were, there were these, these Nazi bronies that were, you know, radicalizing the My Little Pony community. I don't think there's any there there. I think that there may be a handful of provocateurs who are engaged in the time-honored tradition of trolling. Um, And that trolling is ideologically useful. It is useful for both those that like to troll and those that like to react to the trolling and to say, look, look at what the Gen Z youth of today has become. They are moral monsters because there's a there's a segment of the population that just like they are looking for confirmation of their assessment of Gen Z. And this is great confirmation of that. And, you know, there will be another slew of think pieces about, you know, 
you know, I'm a millennial, so I got, you know, 30 years of think pieces of people thinking I was a teenager up until my late 30s. And now finally they've woken up to, you know, there are actually younger people and they actually have like a different name than millennial. Yeah. We're starting to see that now. Yeah. The attribution of a lot of things that Gen Z was doing to millennials uh, helps to underscore my point that these generational designations are often stupid and arbitrary and people misunderstand them. Uh, But I I do think you have a good point here that this is an example of a type of journalism that goes on. I'll tell a quick little story here that has really nothing to do with this, but you'll you'll understand the connection in a moment. Uh, My alma mater, Millican University in beautiful scenic Decatur, Illinois, we are primarily famous for two graduates, uh, two alums. In the 1980s, we graduated a student by the name of Jody Benson. Jody Benson went on to be the voice of Ariel in Disney's animated movie, The Little Mermaid. In 2004, in my graduating class, we graduated a student by the name of Sierra Bagus, who went on to debut the role of Ariel in the Broadway production of The Little Mermaid. One little liberal arts school, two little mermaids. If you'll remember, a couple years ago, when they first announced the Disney live-action remake of The Little Mermaid— and I keep wanting to say Halle Berry, but I think it's Haley Berry is uh, as the actress for uh, – I'll look that up and correct myself in a moment here if I'm wrong about that. Um, but the – they announced that she is going to be the actress portraying Ariel and she's a black woman. And there were all of these journalistic pieces about how the outrage online about the casting of a black woman to play Ariel – And this is always the case, and I encourage people to do this because I think it still happens, especially in – because journalists are overwhelmingly still on what is now called X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. And they draw sourcing for a lot of their stories and the things they're going to write about from there. They will find these tweets of people actually doing the thing that they're saying, being angry about the fact that a black woman was cast to play Ariel in the live-action version of The Little Mermaid. But when you click through and you look at these accounts, these are people with like 22 followers, right? This is not something that is being amplified by people with thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers. And I remember just making the joke of I too am outraged about this casting decision for this production of The Little Mermaid, not because she's black, but because she's not a graduate of Millican University. Like, can we at least get her an honorary degree? But I think it goes to underscore that a lot of these things are – portrayed as being a lot more penetrating into the culture and exploding in a way that they aren't actually exploding for a lot of the purposes that I think you outlined. I I, want to get to that one element that we said we'd come back to, which was the Guardian's decision to pull down the bin Laden letter to America. I think this is representative of the exact wrong approach that people take in these kinds of moments. I think we saw a lot of this over the last eight to ten years of if we can just make the bad thing at the origin go away, then people will stop believing it. Is is this kind of – it infused the attitudes of a lot of these social media platforms about the kind of content, particularly during COVID, that they were in favor of banning and eliminating and suppressing. With this idea, like, if people hear bad ideas, they will start to believe them. And that's true to a certain extent. But to me, this is representative of just the kind of failure that if you – you should be able to possess the faculties to read bin Laden's letter to America and understand why it is wrong factually, historically, and morally. You should be able to do that. And if you are not able to do that, if you are so taken by a piece of propaganda penned by the architect of September 11th, you've been failed. You have been failed by your parents probably. You've been failed by the educational institutions who did not imbue to you an understanding of this country and what happened in the lead up and on September 11th and in the aftermath of all of that. The failure is not on The Guardian for having it on their website. The failure is on people for not teaching younger generations the reality about all of this. There's also an interesting – the rationale that The Guardian offered for doing this was that that people were coming to this letter without context. And it's like the letter is the context. You have pulled the context. Now – 
if anybody comes across this, it is going to be harder for people to access this thing and deliver and use their faculties to sort of try to understand that this is just patently ridiculous and, you know, to read the letter for themselves. I think there's a classic mistake in looking at these sorts of trends, uh, these literally sorts of trending things on social media. We are like two dozen TikTok trends removed already from this. The- well, and to your point about being a millennial too, I presume the reason that I haven't seen these TikTok videos is like most other millennials, I get my TikTok videos the way the rest of my generation does about two or three weeks later on Instagram. Yeah. So you have these things that, you know, they're here today, gone tomorrow. You you look at the newspaper, this happens. Like real events that really impact people's lives are in one ear and without and out the other because, you know what, you can only hold on to so much. And so much of this is fleeting when I think about the amount of energy that people dedicate to reacting to this, to monitoring this, to doing these sorts of things, it really seems misplaced, not because these people are right, but because these people are attention merchants in an increasingly saturated market where attention is divided and divided and divided. If it were 1955 and Walter Cronkite were reading out Osama bin Laden's letter to America, on the nightly news and talking about how amazing it is, I'd be concerned. No one occupies that position for better or for worse in the United States of America today. Um, And the upside of that is is that you know you wait around long enough and you get you know people doing shots of Malord on TikTok you know next week. Yeah, I I want to raise this question that bridges into our third topic that we will touch on only very briefly because we are running long. Uh, do you think that there's a colorable case to be made that it? I've wrestled with this question personally. That there is a colorable case to be made that the right thing to do is to ban the TikTok app in the United States. And why, you know, I think, again, with the experience that we've had here at the Acton Institute with regard to TikTok, we were posting videos about our documentary on Jimmy Lai, uh, the Hong Konger, uh, which got us banned by TikTok. Uh, You know, there's, I think there's, let me just sum it up this way. I think there is a credible case to be made that it is some kind of a psyop, that it is controlled, that it is directed by a state that is hostile to the United States and has ill intentions towards the United States. And that, you know, again, while this whole phenomenon that we've been discussing for the last 15 minutes or so was not as large and then wasn't the tidal wave that it was made out to be, it nonetheless still exists. And there are younger people who disproportionately in Gen Z get their news from TikTok, who use TikTok as their primary search engine to learn about things. And you know, I, I recognize the irony here as I come back to just saying that I don't think it was the right thing to do to pull the letter from The Guardian. I think there's a difference in kind in discussing an entire social media platform, ultimately where the algorithm is directed by the Chinese Communist Party. I am at this point wholly indifferent. I think that there are immense technological challenges to any such ban. Um, This is, you know, in societies that have any degree of success in controlling what's on the internet, I can think of two. And those are two societies we talked about earlier, which was China and India. Uh, China has done it through... um, creating an essentially parallel structure, you know, the whole sort of great firewall of China, which is very porous and which uh, people can and do, thankfully, get around. Um, In India, you have uh, essentially, you know, where the state weaponizes torts against critics and will file lawsuits potentially against firms, those sorts of things. That's also a mixed 
a mixed bag. It's effective against certain organizations and certain corporations that are large enough um, where their where their where their Indian uh, business really really matters. Um, it's extremely challenging to do, and I have not seen a you know an effective way to do it. And there's also the question of if this is a Chinese propaganda operation, does it just shift? If it's important enough to develop the most popular social media platform in the world, and if they've done it once, why not again? Um, so I think there's also an interesting case to be made. There's an interesting paper, and I'll, I'll provide the link for the show notes, that actually from a consumer surplus angle, all social media is negative. Um, there's an interesting paper. I follow economics papers all the time where uh, it makes it makes an interesting argument that uh, social media is actually on net uh, harmful in terms of, you know, economically harmful to all actors. But, you know, independently, it's one of those it's one of those uh, sort of tragedies of the commons sort of thing. And we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, I think I, I think I'm largely in agreement with you. There are certainly elements of the you know, go back to the Thomas Sowell insight of if the thing you're talking about is impossible to do. It's not worth talking about. And you're right. You know, the nature of the Internet is going to make it very hard. You can ban certain app stores from carrying the app, but there will then be other ways that one can access the platform. So I don't know about the effectiveness of all of it unless you're going to just make the case that the symbolic action of having banned TikTok, of, of writing on a piece of paper that TikTok is hitherto for banned. And all, I don't know. I, I'm – I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic along those lines than I used to be, but I still think I'm largely in agreement with you that it's the – I don't know how effective it's actually going to be to do it and the harm might actually be more pronounced uh, from attempting to do it, that, attempting to do something that's not possible in the first place. So we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure we will revisit this topic in the future. I want to handle very briefly our final topic for today reading from a piece from uh, National Review uh, by the great Jimmy Quinn, who does great work covering China issues for National Review. On Wednesday night, Xi Jinping received a standing ovation from a group of more than 300 U.S. elites at a welcome dinner by friendly organizations in the United States. That's how Chinese officials and state media characterized the event at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco, attended by U.S. corporate leaders and political heavyweights with close ties to Beijing. It's hard to dispute their framing. The crowd was a who's who of Americans with a vested interest in maintaining close ties with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, note some of the people who were in attendance there. Uh, Apple's Tim Cook, BlackRock's Larry Fink, Blackstone's Stephen Schwartzman, Bridgewater's Ray Dalio, Boeing's Stanley Deal, FedEx's Rajesh. I cannot pronounce his name, and I'm not going to try to butcher it because I'm not a jerk. Um MasterCard's uh, Merit Janow, Nike's Mark Parker, Pfizer's Albert Bourla, and Qualcomm's uh, Cristano Aman. So there's something in incredibly gross to me about all of this, the kind of fawning over a communist dictator in Xi Jinping, a guy who is doing all the things that we know from that we've talked about and documented here at Acton and on this program, the persecution of Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong, the ethnic cleansing of the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province, and to just kind of fawningly welcome him to the United States uh, is, is just kind of a bad look for this country and for a lot of corporate CEOs who are kind of in this groveling place, uh, being there applauding a man who's doing really, truly terrible things. This is an example of what we talked about at the top of the hour with Philip Booth and the structures of sin. We have... <clears throat> A situation where many of America's leading firms, you know, the leaders, you know, where the incentives are such that, you know, you are right, this is, this is extremely bad optics, but the incentives are such right now, the structures of sin are so deeply embedded that it's still worth it to them despite it. That they think that there is more to be gained than to be lost by associating with a figure that we know is a monster. Um, that is, so the, the question is, is, you know, this, the structures of sin is an explanation 
it's not an excuse. It might be, you know, morally mitigating factor in some sense, but that doesn't make it any less wrong. And uh, I think I think we're right to uh, call attention to it. The one other note about this that I want to make is I will I will understand how this part of it is perhaps and and should be aggravating to residents of San Francisco, which is the work that California and San Francisco officials did to clean up the city ahead of Xi Jinping's arrival. Uh, you know, anybody who's listening to this program is likely familiar with a lot of the challenges that San Francisco is facing. A large homeless population, a lot of drug use out in the streets. Uh, there are actually apps where you can track where all of the human excrement on the streets is. And uh, what they demonstrate is like they can clean it up if they desire to. And they desire to in order to impress a communist dictator from China. They don't seem to desire to for the people who live in and pay the taxes to support the government of that city. I – if I lived there, I'd find that kind of thing absolutely outrageous. And I'm, I'm curious if this will lead to – you've seen already the hints of a little bit of a backlash in places like San Francisco. They were the school board recall elections. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I always try to remain hopeful about these things that uh, just the same way that you can look at the history of New York City and see how bad it was in the 1970s and how it started turning around in the 80s into the 90s, that these cities can go through these cycles and can make a recovery. And, and maybe this is one of those incidents that helps to spur that along when people see that they're – anybody who tells them is like, oh, we can't do anything about this. No, they very much can. They choose not to. Absolutely. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes right now where you can find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our program. I again want to encourage you to subscribe to our magazine, Religion and Liberty, where you can read not only Philip Booth's great essay that we discussed today, but other great pieces by Marvin Alasky, Michael Matheson Miller, Daniel Klein, the piece by Sam Gregg reviewing Matthew Desmond's uh, Poverty by America, which we published online today, and many more. Only $29.99 will get you four issues of our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times a year. You can look in the show notes for this episode to a link where you can subscribe. Thanks to Dan. A big thanks to Philip Booth. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.